Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you all as we begin a new series. I love new series Sundays. They just give me so much sense of like hope and all those different things. I don't know what it is, but it might just be a me thing. In 2008, I was asked to go speak at a conference, and I uh, was on a plane flying to Bulgaria, landed, was picked up by someone who was helping oversee the conference. They took me uh, to the hotel that we were staying at. I was speaking the Saturday morning, and this was Friday evening, Uh, so I went to the hotel, got changed, and then thought I'd go down and see the first night of the conference just to feel out what was happening. So I walked into a room of around 600 or so people aged, some of them were around 16 to 25, and I saw a a young lady across the other side of the room who uh, looked like she was maybe in her early 20s, and in that moment, God said to me, this is the woman you're going to marry. And so I went over to her and said, God said we're going to get married. (laughs) I didn't say quite that. They had one of those great moments where they would say, hey, why don't you go and say hi to someone? And and, and I remember there was someone between me and her. And it was almost like, you know, when you see a really great hit in hockey, like you just fully block someone out the way. And and I sent this person flying and I just went over and said something like, you know, my name's Alex or something like that. I probably slicked back the eyebrows or some, some kind of feel, but, but that was our first conversation and it led to a second conversation and to us dating over the Atlantic and to eventually uh, getting married and, and 14 years later and four kids later, she stuck with me even though I buy hundreds of books a year and stack them all over the living room, even though I leave open every drawer and every closet that I've ever opened and I do that at work too and they stick with me as well, it's wonderful. But, but that was our story. That was 2008. In 2007, I was in a seminary class on pastoral theology, and the professor stood up and told us a story that had happened recently at his church. A young lady around early 20s had walked into the building. She was a model for a makeup agency. She'd walked in and gathered attention just because of how she looked, and during one of the first times she attended, a elder of the church walked over to her and said, I believe God's told me that we're supposed to get married. And she said, well, you're an elder in the church. You've been doing this for a long time. I'm kind of new to faith. You must be right. And so they did. 14 years later, they are not still married. (laughs) The two stories that I've just told you, okay, I give you, I grant you, they, they have some differences, right? But they also have some similarities, they, they, all cent, they both center around this idea that the, that the God of the universe might speak. He may ask you to do something that sounds unusual. And depending on how you listen or whether you've listened, an outcome might be different. There is a tension there as we wrestle with this series, listening to God's voice. My hope is that there is tension. My hope is that we feel some of that because there's probably two ends of a spectrum we can go here. There is one end of a spectrum that might say, God does not speak and he certainly doesn't speak to me. We'll cover that in a second. And the other end of the spectrum might be that God has an opinion about every single thing that has ever happened in your life. I once had a friend in seminary who believed God was supposed to be involved in what color underwear he wore on a morning. My response was, 
take a pair. God doesn't care. It's just that so long as they're clean and don't have holes in, like he's on board. There, there is this spectrum that we can go to one end or another. Perhaps for you, you have a bunch of baggage with this because you've been in a church culture where this kind of process has been abused. I grew up in a kind of church like that where I would occasionally hear people say things like, God said this to me, and yet I would look at the character of the person and have questions about whether it was God that spoke to them. I had just down the road in England a person that did ministry who came confidently to his church and said, I've left my wife and married a much younger wife because now I have the wife God wanted me to have all along. He told me he wants me to be happy. There's aspects to this that we may have heard, and it may raise all sorts of questions, even just trigger us to the point that we can't hear this conversation as clearly as we might like. So because of that, we, of course, have an opportunity to ask questions, and so you can take down this number. It will appear on the next couple of slides, too, and when Aaron and I do our podcast on Thursday, we'll be able to just tap into some of those questions, because it is an emotive subject. There's those two broad questions lurking over the subject. There is, does God speak? Maybe you would rather a question before that, of like, is there a God at all? And we can get there at some point. But for now, we're just going to start there. Does God, if he's real, does he speak? And then, and then maybe more poignantly, does he speak to me? Does he speak to people like you and me? For, for whatever reason, most religions have landed for all of history in this idea that God speaks in a very particular way. There's usually a sacred man who lives in a sacred building, or at least goes there for work, and, and he has a sacred text, and at sacred times of the year, he gathers the people, and he's the one that speaks. He's the one that or God speaks to. He's the one that communicates to the other people. The, the communication is just to one person, and then it spreads to everybody else. And, and when Jesus arrived on the scene, his take on that was surprisingly refreshing. He suggested that was an everybody thing. In John chapter 10, verse 27, and we're going to take this as a series text, he said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Now, up until this point, Jesus has been using metaphor in this story. He's talked about you and I are sheep. He is like a shepherd. And so the first implication of this text is simply you and I, if we're going to follow him, would at some point feel that call, call feel that pull. Uh, in an eastern world, a shepherd would just call the sheep by name and they would choose to follow him. And so that's the first reading there. But it certainly seems as we read on that he had some expectation that this would be an everyday process, that you and I can hear his voice and respond. That it's not just for the people that stand on platforms. That it's not just for the people that wear suits to church. It's not just for the people that abstain from alcohol. It's not just for any of the good people. It seems like it's supposed to be. For everybody. The rest of the verse is this, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. It's this picture painted of an ongoing relationship that seems to be conversational. And even if you don't pull it from that verse, all over the New Testament are everyday people just like you and I, who seem to be able to engage with what God is saying to them. 
The person who wrote most of the New Testament, a guy called Paul, has this momentary experience where it's like a flash of lightning. And yet the person asked to navigate him through that is an everyday, everyday guy called Aeneas, who we never hear from again. In that moment of need, God speaks to an everyday follower who goes and does something to further his mission in the world. It seems like you and I can be pulled into that same story. The writer, Brother Lawrence, says this, There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice it and experience it. So whatever your struggle with this, whatever the baggage, whatever the history, what we're going to try and do is put that aside for a second and just ask and enter in freshly again to this idea, does God speak to everyday people like you and I? And if he does, how can we learn to hear it? Maybe you feel, as I do, like more resonance with this passage than, or this quote than the one before. How can we find him who fills all things and yet evades our grasp? How can we find our way to our Father? It's that invite into relationship that we're talking about here. A few premises for you and a few things that hopefully for this series clear some of the baggage away. These are some of my thoughts. Listening to God's voice brings change. When you read the New Testament, this seems to be like the single best or single most transformative practice we can enter into. Hearing from the God of the universe changes something dramatically inside of us. It also brings clarity. In those moments of confusion, in those moments of uncertainty, there's something about the voice we'll talk about today that brings that sense of uh, it's become clear. And then, here's the tension point, learning to listen to God's voice brings complication. It brings complication. It's a difficult process at times to enter into, especially when it's something that you're new to. It has all of the baggage we talked about earlier, all of the ways that you may have seen it abused. Perhaps for some of you, you sit here and say, there was a time I believed God said this to me, and it didn't happen. And now there's a crisis of faith. There was a time when somebody else told me that God said this, and it seems like it was a lie. What am I supposed to do with that? We're going to wrestle with all of those different things. But some premises there for you, three of them, and then some things I'd love to state to, to kind of clear the ground. Now these I'm not going to give you a proof text for. We could talk about that maybe in the podcast, but here, here are just a list of things that I found helpful really quick before we jump into this delightful narrative that you guys are going to love. I, I can feel it. So, so here we go. Number one, listen to God's voice is not a cheat code. It's not a cheat code. I used to, when I had more free time, love to play immersive computer games. Recently, my daughter said, you know, you should start playing Zelda. And I said, maybe once there was time for that, but now four kids and a job and all those different things, that, that's not going to happen. But I used to love getting into these detailed computer games. And one of my favorites was a game called Age of Empires. It, it was like set in all of these different time periods in history, and you could build armies and castles, and you'd have knights on horseback and archers and all of these different things, and, and it was back in a time when the British army were awesome. It's not quite like today, and so you won most of the time if you were the British guys. It was pre-revolutionary war. It was like, you know, you guys don't know about that stuff. But, but the, the, there was this discovery I made that if in the chat box you typed in the words, how do I turn this on, 
In the midst of this conflict that involved horseback and archery and all of these different things, you were given a Shelby Cobra with a machine gun on the front of it. And of course, you went into every battle and decimated the enemy. You won the game. It like unlocked everything. Sometimes that's how I feel like listening to God has been presented to me. It's a code that you put in and there's a certainty to it. And the game is really simple because of it. And I'm not sure that is true. Second one, it may not sound like a voice. Sometimes verbiage matters. And so if you've heard the idea God speaks to you and you might say something like, well, when you say speak, I don't feel like I hear a voice. Maybe I feel like a, a pull or a leaning or something like that. Maybe you just have different words to describe it. What I don't want us to do is get hung up on the idea of voice. As we'll see today, Voice might be the worst word we can pick to describe that. Three, it may not be the only voice you hear. If you're anything like me, there is a swirling of different conversations going on in your head, and it's a constant effort to say, well, where did that come from? There are other voices out there. The Bible is very comfortable with the spiritual battle between good and evil, and yet there are also just the voices of our own anxiety, of our own shame, of our own guilt and failure, our own history coming back up regularly. So it's not that this is the only voice we're talking about. There's other voices that you may say, where did that come from? Number four, it's not a tame voice. It's not a tame voice. It only takes a brief reading of the Old Testament to discover that God asks people to say, asks people to do some incredibly challenging, even like conflicting things. A prophet called Isaiah, we're told, is asked to walk around naked for three years as an illustration. If any of you come and say God told you to do that, I'm going to have some questions for you. I'll be honest, but but it's there, and it it makes us say, well. What can God ask you to do and what can he not ask you to do? It can handle confirmation. I've met so many people that have said, God told me to do this, but I don't want to talk to anyone else about it because all I need is God's voice. And and the truth is, maybe yes to a degree, but there's something wonderful about having a conversation that seems to confirm something you've heard. A great example of this might be the church that I got to pastor in New York. We were a small community, maybe a hundred people, and, and it looked like the building was going to have to be sold because we couldn't afford to keep it. We had a $1.4 million mortgage for just a hundred people to cover, and yet nobody really, it seemed, wanted it. And so in the midst of us beginning to think about moving, the community started to say, well, what does our future look like? And just in the midst of that, I just had this sense that I should call my friend Roscoe and have a conversation with him about the building. And so I called him one afternoon and we talked about his community. Now, as far as I knew, his community was just about to buy a building they'd been meeting in for around three years. They were really excited about it. And yet, unbeknown to me that afternoon, he'd spoken to his realtor and his realtor had told him, you know you think you're going to buy this building? It's not going to happen. You're going to have to find another option. And his response was, but there are no other options. And in the midst of that, he had this sense of, you know what, you should call Alex and talk to him about the one church building. 
We both still argue today about who called who. In fact, he's given this same illustration in the same subject in a sermon, claiming confidently he called me first, and I'm convinced I'm the one that called him. And yet, the point is that it didn't really matter. Somewhere, the God of the universe, it seems to us, was orchestrating this conversation, and now instead of a a small church struggling to pay a building, now a thriving church exists in that building that's expanding and struggling with parking space every single week. There was a confirmation that took place there. Had he called me and said, Alex, you know that building that you have? God told me you're supposed to sell it to me. That may not have been as easy for me to accept. There was something about the way God spoke through both of us that really helped with the situation. And then six, it doesn't contradict scripture. Now, this is a fascinating one because depending on your background, some of you will want me to say a lot more about this or a lot less about this. There is something wonderful about this book that has been given to us. It is how it describes itself as this. It is God-breathed. So so I love reading scripture. There was a time in my life where I had a friend who was about 70. He was reading through it five times a year. And I was like, he's 70. It means I can do it. So I started reading it all the time. And during that season, people would come up to me and say, you just seem different at the moment. What's going on in your life? And I said, nothing except I'm reading this book a lot. So I've experienced the ways in which it is transformative. And yet... It seems that it relies on us being able to hear from the God of the universe to unpack everything that it has for us. It isn't just a read it and process it mentally. It's a read it and allow the God of the universe to speak through it. And so if you have a sense that God has said, you should do this, and it seems to contradict directly some of the principles in Scripture, well then, again, we'd have some questions. So... Moving on to the narrative, and and I love this narrative. This narrative takes place from one mountain to another mountain. It begins on a mountain called Carmel. It ends on a mountain called Horeb. And in between, I think we're going to learn a lot about how the God of the universe might speak to us. So I wanted to give you some background. The people of Israel are living in a time where they've had a king who's been a big deal. His name is Omri. He's not actually a big deal within the pages of the Bible. He's just a big deal for all of the other nations. He was so powerful that instead of calling it the house of David, the king that we hear a lot about, people in other nations had started to call it the house of Omri. And yet he kind of just gets missed, and it's his son that we hear more about. His son is named Ahab. Ahab marries a woman from another nation called Jezebel. That name may be familiar to you. And they move the whole of the people of Israel from worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, to worshiping Baal, the God of the harvest, the God of a different nation. Now, in the 21st century, I would say our tolerance for people switching religion is fairly high. In the the century we're talking about now, there was much less tolerance for that. Partly because people located their gods geographically. It was like, he's the God of that area, and he's the God of that area. He's the God of this aspect of of nature. He's the God of this other aspect of nature. So it kind of like was unusual to say, I'm going to pick a God from another nation to be my God. It didn't really happen. And when it did happen, it was always received really badly by some of the other people in your geographical area. So this is exactly what's happened here. The, The people of Israel have now adopted a foreign God as their primary point of worship. And his name is Baal. As I say, he's the God of the harvest. 
And in the midst of that, God sends a man called Elijah as a prophet to this nation. And Elijah is going to set up a conflict, like a visible conflict between the two gods. It's really like guerrilla theater. It's like one god on one side, the other god on the other side, and it just, it's, it's evocative. It's going to play with us. And so after praying that it wouldn't rain for three years, because if Baal is the god of the harvest, he can make it rain, right? Elijah now brings all of the prophets of Baal to this final moment of challenge, this final moment of wrestling to prove who is the real God of the rain, God of the storm. Elijah said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. Let him be the true God. All of this buildup has led to this moment. Baal is the God of rain and the God of the harvest. He should be able to make it rain if he's a real God. So far, he has not made it rain, and now there's this one final opportunity. If he's real, he's going to make it rain. He'll be shown to be victorious. If not, then Yahweh, the God of Israel, is victorious. This is the kind of like denouement moment. And there's this delightful scene that we just can't miss because it's one of those moments where humor comes out of the Hebrew Bible. That The prophets of Baal begin to pray for the rain to come and we're told Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. The actual Hebrew words here are not maybe he is sleeping or maybe he is busy or traveling. The, the primary words are maybe he really needed the bathroom and had to step out of the scene for a second. It's like that picture of you're in the forest and you're on a hike together and you're like, I'm just going to go take care of something over there in the distance. That's the language that he uses. Elijah is playing with these guys and they shout louder and louder and louder. And their shouts, their noise, is met with silence. Remember that. It's met with silence. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Prayers to Baal are met with silence, a particular kind of silence, as we'll find later. And then Elijah prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And the language for burned up is actually it, it devoured it. And there's this moment where almost to add insult to injury, it's like, oh, and then it started to rain. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This conflict, this battleground is set. Baal is silent when prayed to, implied because he was never really alive. And then Yahweh is shown to be the one true God, the one true God of the rains, of the harvest, of every space, of every place, of every type of phenomenon in the sky. 
a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Does God speak on this first mountain? Yes. He speaks in the way that the God of the Israelites have always known, the Israelites have always known their God to speak. He speaks through fire, through dramatic moments, through this public victory over the other gods. This is a normal pattern for these people who have heard from God regularly. And now Ahab told Jezebel everything. Elijah had done whatever, what Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. The victory is so complete that Elijah takes the 450 prophets of Baal and has them all executed. Again, something that for our first century sensibility says, wow, that seems like a harsh response. Today, we'd be like, we're gonna get together, have an interfaith banquet, talk about the benefits of one faith over another or something like that. But this is the context that we're given it in. Elijah has been victorious. Nothing has changed. And now because of what one woman says to him, he's now terrified and about to flee. He's about to run to another mountain. So let's pick up the narrative there. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked round, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days, 40 nights, until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Elijah has this dramatic victory. God speaks in the way that he has always spoken to this people, Israel, and Elijah then flees because of the words of one woman who threatens him and flees where? To another mountain, to a mountain that God has spoken at before in the same way he spoke at Carmel. All this is building to a new way God will speak to his people in the future. So he flees to Horeb, and we read there Moses. Uh, sorry, and, and so let's look at the story uh, from Horeb in Exodus chapter 19. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. This is the mountain that Elijah is headed towards. He's heard God speak through fire. He's heard God speak through dramatic events. God has vindicated himself. He's vindicated Elijah, and now he's fleeing to a mountain where the same kind of story has existed before. In actual fact, sociologists researching this passage would say this is the only time in history that God has spoken to a whole group of people at one time in an audible way. Every Israelite reading this would pick up the narrative and say the same kind of thing is going to happen again. Elijah is going to go to Horeb, this second mountain, and the same type of story will happen. And yet, it doesn't. The narrative's about to get subverted in a fascinating 
way. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here on Horeb? He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And now they are trying to kill me too. It's Elijah's kind of sub-story, his moment that it feels like everything is collapsing on him, even though everything he has experienced so far has been God's supernatural God's speaking through the big events. God's speaking through, speaking in the ways that I think you and I often ask him to speak. Maybe you've experienced that conversation with God. You, you want to know something. Perhaps you want to know he's there. Perhaps you want, to know him, you want to know that he's on your side. Perhaps there's some kind of confirmation you like. And where do we quite often go? Give me some kind of physical sign. Send a certain type of bird flying over my head. Send me the, the kind of like the, the, the northern lights or a sunrise in a particular way. Give me something physical so I can know that you're with me. Maybe you've asked for something like that before. If only you would write your name in the sky, then I would know for certain that you were there. And yet Elijah has had something very similar to that. And he still isn't sure God is on his side. It's still not enough. He's now looking for a second experience that mirrors that first one. He's gone to a place where God has always shown up in fire, expecting him to turn up in fire again. And he doesn't. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. These big supernatural events take place. Supernatural events just like Elijah has experienced a few moments, a few days before, just like the Israelites experienced when they came to this mountain the last time. Only this time, it says God wasn't in any of those things wasn't there and he didn't speak and then he does in chapter 12 and 13 it says the verse 12 and 13 it says this after the fire came a gentle whisper when Elijah heard it he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood out at the mouth of the cave then a voice said to him what are you doing here Elijah The narrative moves from the spectacular and turns towards the intimate. It moves from the loud and turns toward the quiet. It moves from the big external and it becomes kind of internal. What is happening here with this narrative that feels very un-Jewish? It feels very different to the rest of the story. It's supposed to be smoke and supposed to be fire and supposed to be loud noises. And now, now it's this. What is this telling us? On one hand, there is the spectacular loudness of the wind and the fire and the earthquake. Uh, On the other, there is the intimate encounter of what is described probably in the text if you've had it open in front of you as a still small voice the hebrew words are qual damama dequa a still small voice is an okay translation but it's not great 
for a start, the, the idea of qual, of voice, yes, it can mean voice, it can also mean sound. The earthquake has been described as having qual. The fire has been described as having qual. The wind has been described as qual. It's a sound, yes, but a different kind of sound. After the big loudness of the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, this sound is different. Qual da mama de qua could kind of mean a thin sound in the stillness. In actual fact, de qua quite literally means thin. It means what it is to take grain and mill it to the point of fineness. I've got some flax here, and so to give you a picture of just what the sound might be like, it's this sound. This is what's described. So gentle, any noise at all detracts from it, disappears because of any outside interference. That's the picture that it gives us. It's the sound, thin stillness. After centuries of speaking to his people through these intense external moments, after a mountain of fire, after an earthquake, after the winds, suddenly, after all of that, it's the sound of gentle, still a thin whisper. It's these things. This is what we are presented with. This is where God meets with Elijah, not in the way he expected, not in the spectacular, but in a thin sound in the stillness. Dallas Willard, the writer, says this, we are trying to perceive God, not to hear him necessarily, not for a voice, but to perceive what might God be saying. And this is where Elijah catches hold of that. When the spectacular is sought, he says, it's because of childishness in the personality. When we ask for the spectacular, we're being like children. Children want the big thing. They want the noise. And yet somewhere it seems like God says, no, this, this is how I'm heard. I'm heard when it gets still. I'm heard when there's enough space to hear the sound of thin grain falling. That's how he, it seems he communicates. It's not even clear from this text that at this point there's even been a voice at all. It's just space to hear, or at least space to know. Elijah, it seems, knows something in this moment about himself, perhaps, about God, but something changes in this moment of stillness that is distinct. In philosophy, there is a difference between the saying and the said. There are the words that is used, and then there's this recognition that it's possible to convey information without saying anything at all. One of my favorite bands is the band Sigur Ross. You may have heard them. They have this music that hits these incredible levels, and they speak or sing in what sounds like Icelandic. You don't understand it, but it moves you. And yet, it's not actually Icelandic. It's a made-up language. It's called Valenska. It has no syntax. It has no verbiage. It's just sounds. 
And yet when you hear it, you can feel the way that it feels like it moves you. It, it does something inside of you. And somewhere this is the same language at place. Somewhere Elijah experiences a stillness which is transformative even before God speaks a word. The writer Russell Gregory says this, it is the silence of close presence of a being so close that the stare and the wafer-thin whisper are all that is needed. Remember the moment where the prophets of Baal prayed with their loudness and their dancing and they were met with silence that was the silence of absence. Elijah comes to a mountain and he is met with silence, but it's the silence of presence. It speaks to the ability of two people that are in love to sit in the same room and say nothing to each other but convey so much to each other. The, the, the ability of a mother or a father to hold a child and for that child to know they are loved even before they understand the language piece. In those moments, all that might be needed is a whisper, never a shout. It's maybe the experience you've had of being in love and, and whispering something for only the other person to hear and you know that it has to be quiet because otherwise it becomes a public thing and not a private thing. There is a closeness to this, a whisper to this. This is what this writer tries to convey. Don't look for God in earthquakes and spectacular signs. Don't look for him in flocks of birds flying over the grave of someone that you love. Those things might work for a while, but look. Look for this thing that's quiet and still and gentle and can be lost in a moment. When you are near, it seems, when you are present, there is no need to shout. And in this moment, in his invitation, God does not shout to Elijah. It's gentle and it's a whisper. The writer Craig Rochelle says this, the devil shouts lies, God whispers truth. After centuries of invites to big, spectacular moments, in this moment, Elijah becomes perhaps the first Israelite to be invited into this kind of gentleness, this kind of hearing. And in that space, he's allowed to put forward his protest again. He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and, you put, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. And God, graciously it seems, gives a response there's those moments of brokenness, those moments of hurt, those moments of pain that invite us, it seems, into God's presence in a particular way. The writer Joni Erickson Tada had a diving accident when she was 17 years old. She dived into the shallow end of a pool and broke a couple of vertebrae in her neck. She's not been able to walk or do anything since she paints these incredible photos with just her mouth and a brush. And yet she's talked about what she experienced as been nothing but good. She said this, so here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. She was invited into this kind of space because of her trauma. And for those of us that have experienced suffering, trauma, questions, we're invited to bring the same to this same kind of space. God's response to Elijah is this, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In the midst of Elijah's questions and his wrestling and his coming to God with all of his angst, God gives him exactly what he needed, this sense of gentle presence 
and then says to him, Elijah, you weren't actually right at all. You're not alone. There's plenty of you left. You're not by yourself. And yet still at his worst point, at his lowest point perhaps, this God meets him. One of the beautiful things that the Bible seems to navigate us through is this, that God speaking to us is not just dependent on whether we're doing well or whether we're doing badly. At the Last Supper, this moment, Jesus gathers with his followers. Jesus speaks directly to just two people. He speaks to John, the one called the beloved disciple, who seems to do everything right. And he speaks directly to Judas, the one who will betray him. In that moment, that holy moment, the God of the universe in flesh, in Jesus speaks to the worst and the best of his followers. Perhaps it's this joy that he can speak to us at our best and our worst too. He certainly does that for Elijah. At his best, he speaks through earthquakes and fire, but at his worst, he reserves this still, small voice that can so easily be missed. Somewhere there's this process that seems to take place in this narrative. First, there is this silencing of the other voices, whatever those might be to you. There's the silencing of an earthquake, of a wind and of fire. And then there's this new type of communication that is a different thing that's taking place. It's only then that there's an answering of questions. We're going to come to this table that's old, this 2,000-year-old table that Jesus created for us. Jesus invites us into this grand story in a new way, too. He invites us into a relationship with God that he paints as conversational, but conversational for anybody. It's not for people on platforms, not for people who dress well. It is for those of us that find ourselves the most broken. And it seems that those most willing to hear are the ones that get to hear. We get to come to this table with our longing. We get to bring all of the ways that we have wrestled with the other voices that seem to swirl around us. We get to come and listen for God to communicate in a new way. And perhaps we get to hear him tell us what we've been longing to hear. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to prepare ourselves for this moment. First, I'd like to invite you to begin to identify your earthquake, your wind, your fire. Perhaps there's something that's just weighing. For me, those voices are my own anxiety about how people perceive me. My own fears for what the future might be. My own busyness and sense of pressure. my own desire for everything to be fun and lighthearted. Those are my earthquake, those are my wind, and those are my fire. Those are the things that distract. There might be something different for you. Maybe there's a sense of a broken relationship, some kind of way that you failed in the past. some kind of trauma. Maybe it's the ways that you've heard people talk about the voice of God and you've just said, I see through that. That's a fraud. I don't buy it. Maybe you've seen it done really unhealthily. 
with no grace, lots of judgment. So for a second, we're gonna try and lay aside all of those things, all of those distractions. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with your hands just turned upwards. And just imagine you're holding all of those things. Concern for a loved one who's sick, wrestling with a marriage that feels like it's not working. Raising kids, watching kids raise grandkids. All of those different things that just weigh us. Maybe it's the ways that we've seen God work in the past. A desire for it to be exactly the same as it was then. Maybe it's simply the sense that God would never speak to someone like me. And when you're ready, I'm just going to invite you to turn your hands over and just imagine all of those things just drop to the ground. You get to let go. And then turn your hands back the other way. Just recognize that you're receiving grace. The stillness and gentleness in which God might speak. You are loved. You are valued. You are invited into God's grand story. Not because you are good, but because of Jesus. His sheep hear his voice. And you can too. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.